constitutes cheating in Major League Baseball? What makes one form of cheating worse than another? And how does the Hall of Fame's character clause help in any way? Good morning to you. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or hockey. I also offer up daily shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. If you check out DK Pittsburgh Sports today, the website, you'll find my annual column that reveals my hall ballot. And you will find on that ballot no players that I will have considered to be cheaters. Let's start first with my actual ballot. Three of the players for whom I voted and you're allowed a maximum of 10, are holdovers from previous ballots, and those are Todd Helton, Scott Rowland, and Kurt Schilling. The one new player on my ballot is David Ortiz, and Ortiz is going to end up being a lightning rod because the way the votes are starting to stack up, and there's a lot of ballots that do get revealed early, meaning before the January 26 formal presentation by the hall. It looks like Ortiz is going to be the only guy that gets voted in. So what's going to end up happening is everyone's going to be, how can you vote for Ortiz when he allegedly failed a steroid test in 2003 while you're contributing to keeping out Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, uh, Alex Rodriguez, and all the rest of the guys on there who were known to have used steroids and performance-enhancing substances. The difference here, based on the research that I've done, is clear, and that's that Ortiz's case was never close to being verified meaning there's no evidence whatsoever that his test even existed. And there's been extensive investigating done into that, including by the commissioner's office. And Rob Manfred himself recently made a statement about Ortiz essentially absolving him saying that this easily could have been an error. We found multiple samples at the time that didn't line up with what ended up getting printed in what was then called the George Mitchell Report, named for the senator who conducted that wave of investigations nearly 20 years ago. Everyone went out of their way to distance Ortiz from this single, single element to the case that he'd have cheated. Nothing else ever came up through his career. To me, when you are judging these guys, they are not guilty until proven innocent. It's the other way around. When you compare <laughs> Ortiz and this one thing that 
everyone all the way up to the most powerful man in baseball says is BS to the mountains, and I mean mountain ranges of evidence about the cheating of the other individuals on this ballot, they're not in the same solar system. But you know, even that doesn't begin to put a dent in the broader debate about what constitutes cheating. This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern that's directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone, an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. There isn't much to the character clause. It references, oh, character, sportsmanship, and it doesn't get into any kind of detail. So it doesn't say, well, listen, Gaylord Perry's in the Hall of Fame, and he threw a spitball, mudball, moonball, shineball, whatever, to get a lot of the results that he did. It was commonly known at the time, became kind of a funny ha-ha thing. That's just who he is. It's what he does. Critics of the character clause will also point out that it doesn't delineate between things that are done wrong within the game, on the field or off the field. You can look, I suppose, at precedents like Pete Rose and his gambling and his being banned from baseball, but Rose never made it onto a hall ballot. So it's hard to argue even there that the character clause applies to Rose since it never came to that. No one's ever had a chance to vote or not vote for Rose. So what do you do with the thing? Well, I can only speak for myself. I'm one voter and I don't look across the aisle and try to cheat off someone else's papers when I do it. Yeah, precedent does matter, but not all that much. The character clause, and in fact, the entire voting guidelines have remained exactly the same since the very first class of 1936, meaning the one, of course, that had Hannes Wagner and some other guy named Babe Ruth get voted in. It's never changed. Never changed. So you can look at that and say, okay, well, what's been done in the past? But also, you have to understand that not all of the conditions from the past apply to the more recent past or to the present. The steroids era has people, fans, according to polls, pretty much split right down the middle. You'll see that everywhere. It's 50-50. Should the guy get in? Should his record count? Should Bonds be considered the home run king over the truly great and honorable Hank Aaron? Should you look at the fact that Hank Aaron and guys in the 70s used greenies and amphetamines to, you know, get themselves all hyped up for the game? Uh, was that cheating? Uh, was it against the rules? When did it stop being or start being against the rules? These things, you can do this into oblivion. 
as I see it, based on intensive research, and I'm talking about volumes of stuff that I've read, performance-enhancing substances, steroids, have a dramatic impact on A, your ability to stay healthy and strong for longer periods of time and deeper into your age, which is how we saw Bonds and Clements, most notably, perform at their peaks, at their career peaks as they approached 40, which was insane. And of course, unnatural. And when I look at Bonds in particular and see that he ended up breaking the game's most hallowed record, American sports most hallowed record, by topping Aaron's home runs, that's a direct impact on the game. That's a direct assault on the game. That's not moon ball, shine ball, greenies, and, and whatever. Getting up for the game isn't going to help you much. Uh, amphetamines or whatever as you get into your late 30s. It's not going to impact your performance. It's not going to allow you to swing a bat that's, you know, that could just as well be a toothpick and poke the ball over a 450-foot fence. Nor on the mound have the same impact for a pitcher. There's cheating with all caps, and then there's cheating. If you ask me what I would prefer out of this whole scenario, I've spoken and written this for years. Get rid of the character clause. Let the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball, who work together and who are the only ones who could get rid of the character clause, go right ahead and do so, and then they can play judge and jury and everything else that people accuse the writers of doing. But you know what? They haven't done that. They haven't taken the clause out. They do leave it in the writer's hands because I think they just want to let the writers take the heat for everything. Okay, fine. Doesn't bother me at all. I'm going to follow the guidelines as they are. If they had dropped the character clause this year, I would have voted for Bonds and Clemens and Sosa and A-Rod and everyone else on that list who cheated. Why? Because I'd have had no reason not to. But you know what? They left it in. When we come back, just one question. time for just one question. Today's comes from Timothy Hemis, who asks, what are the top moments in Pirates history that you have covered? This, Tim, is a difficult question to ask for a couple of reasons. One is the painfully obvious that there haven't been that many in the time that I've been covering the team, that beginning with the start of the 2005 season. There hasn't been a whole lot there. Teams made the playoffs, of course, in only three years, had a winning record in only four years. Uh, not a lot to say or to write about. And it's very easy to point 
to the obvious blackout game and just call it a day. The blackout game, in fact, remains the top thing of any kind that I've covered when it comes to an emotional experience type standpoint. And understand, please, that I cover all three Pittsburgh teams. And just a couple nights ago, I got to cover Ben Roethlisberger's farewell game at Heinz Field, and that was an amazing scene. But there's only one blackout. Uh, the, the passion that went into that, the people with their families and fathers and grandparents and in tears that their favorite franchise was finally competent again after 20 years of losing, that, that just that can't be topped at least not from what's already happened. I'm sure it can be topped again someday by some team or other. So I don't have a real long list. I have great individual games and comebacks and things like that. But to be honest with you, the next thing that comes on my list is not something that I covered, uh, but I just went and bought a ticket, and that was the opening of PNC Park. I was a season ticket holder. Uh, back then. And when I say season ticket holder, I don't mean screwing around. I was all 81 home games. This was my way of taking a breather from the Penguins and Steelers, who I was covering for the Post-Gazette at the time, primarily Penguins, but I would also do uh, Steelers opponents for the games that they played. So Every team I was around, you know, I had to be professional and all that other stuff. With the Pirates, I could just go and have fun. It was my way of, you know, still being a sports fan or whatever. And the opening of the ballpark is something I can't even put into words. And if you did lump that in for whatever reason with blackout, I would take the opening of the ballpark itself over the blackout. Uh, those of us who lived through that time and recall what it was like believing that there was a really good chance that the Pirates were going to leave Pittsburgh and that there was no ownership group stepping up and that there were murmurs and rumors here or there about such and such city wanting to come in and take them away if Pittsburgh couldn't find a way to get them out of Three River Stadium. That was a scary, scary time, uh, not just from the standpoint of people who love baseball, but really for the city because the Steelers were in on that mix too. They weren't going to leave Pittsburgh, but well, meaning Western Pennsylvania, but there was talk that they could build a stadium in Washington County, if you can imagine something that ridiculous for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But when that stadium opened, and I don't even necessarily mean the opener itself, when Todd Ritchie faced the Cincinnati Reds, even the two exhibitions that were played before that against the Mets, the, you know, those post-spring training exhibitions, walking into that place, uh, walking around it, all I could think to myself, and this was from a civic standpoint was, I can't believe this is ours. I can't believe it. I cannot believe that the city of Pittsburgh has this and nobody can take it away. I can't believe that this thing exists. And 
me and my friend Pete Aldrich, who was my partner in sharing the season tickets, we must have gone all over every millimeter of that place, just up, down, and sideways, sitting in different seats, being on the rotunda, being on the walkways behind center field, uh, watching from inside the right field of the Clemente Wall fence. Uh, nothing, nothing can top that. And it's funny, as many times as I get asked questions about, you know, your favorite this or that or whatever from your course of covering sports, I have never brought this up before because I I think of all of that stuff pre-coverage or pre-reporter days as being in a totally separate category. But this, this one stands alone. There's really not anything like when PNC Park opened. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everybody listening to Daily Shot of Pirates. We'll do another one tomorrow.